If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, the fourth book of the New Testament, as we continue in this study that we've begun in John's Gospel. We'll be in verses 19 through 34 this afternoon. Uh, Have you ever had the experience of being distracted by something minor so that you miss the thing that you should have been focused on that's much more important? Uh, Maybe you... Maybe you've gone to a movie, and the people that are in the row in front of you, they're just a little bit loud, or maybe they're getting up all the time, or they start throwing popcorn, and you end up watching them the whole time instead of watching the movie that's on the screen, which is what you paid for. What's more important? Uh, Andrea and I were at a concert last year, and there was just a little drama happening in front of us. I don't know what was going on, but something was happening, and it kept distracting me from the band that was on the stage that I was supposed to be watching. Uh, something similar might happen in a, in a story where maybe a minor character somehow captures your attention and, and you start to forget about the main character. You want to hear more about that person. Well, in this story, in this true story that, that John writes, he's careful uh, never to let that happen in his gospel. Whatever witnesses he brings forth, whatever other characters uh, come out, it's always clear that Jesus is the most important and the most compelling character, and he's the one that we should pay attention to and listen to. That said, John the Baptist was a towering figure. Even Jesus said of John the Baptist, among those born of women, which is everyone, uh, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet, John teaches us something very unique, especially for how uh, towering a, a figure that he was. This is what John teaches us. He teaches us that no matter who we are or what we do, Jesus alone deserves glory. That's our big idea for today. No matter who we are or what we do, Jesus alone deserves glory. As John the Baptist points us to the glory of God seen in Jesus, he's always pointing away from himself, seeing that his role was always to to highlight who Christ was and to call others to believe in him. He had real power and authority given by God himself, But John always lets his words and lets his life push others towards receiving Jesus and letting him be glorified. And therefore, we say that he teaches us that no matter who we are or what we do, Jesus alone deserves glory. Beginning here in verse 19 of chapter 1, the gospel according to John reveals seven titles that people gave to Jesus. This is what they are. The Lamb of God, the Son of God, Rabbi, Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, King of Israel, and Son of Man. We're going to look at the first two of those today in verses 19 through 34 in the witness of John the Baptist, but then we'll pick up the other five next week, Lord willing. Let me just say those again in case you missed one. The Lamb of God, the Son of God, Rabbi, Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, King of Israel, 
and Son of Man. And those are all spoken by individuals, including Jesus himself. Uh, Another seven that you should be aware of as we step into this passage is that there's seven days that are passing from verse 19 of of chapter 1 through uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, We're at the same location, actually, by the Jordan River until verse 43, which is the fourth day. And there the scene moves away from the Jordan and from Galilee, um, and it moves away from um, it moves away from the Jordan and from John the Baptist to Galilee and to Jesus, and then on the seventh day we are in Cana where we witness Jesus's first sign, the changing of the water into wine. I think we'll probably talk about this a little bit more later, but I don't think that it's a stretch to see some significance in the fact that John begins the book. He begins his prologue with the words, "In the beginning." And then he follows the prologue with a series of seven days that showcase Jesus as the word of God and the one who brings light and life to the chaos and the darkness of the world. I don't think that's an accident. But for now, we'll talk about that later. For now, let's read John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34, where we hear the witness of John and we're taught this truth that no matter who we are or what we do, Jesus alone deserves glory. John one beginning in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist has already been spoken of in the prologue where it was stated very clearly in verses 6 through 8 that he was not the Christ. He's not the Messiah, but a witness to him. However, this question of of John's identity is further addressed here in verses 19 through 28. So before we hear John's uh, witness about who Jesus is, we learn who John was. We'll take that as our first point, who John was. Uh, and in fact, there's actually, there's a lot about who he was not before there's any statement just about who he actually was. And though it's not specifically stated in these verses, I think it could be helpful to begin by saying John was not 
John the Apostle. Who was John? Well, he was not John the Apostle. John's gospel actually is the only one that doesn't refer to John as John the Baptist, which would distinguish him from John the son of Zebedee the Apostle. There's no need for that distinction because this gospel account never actually directly talks about John the disciple. His name is, is never mentioned uh, explicitly, which actually could be one more piece of evidence that it's John the disciple who wrote this account. There's no need to make a distinction. He's talking about John the Baptist. He's not talking about himself. Well, the rest of the information we have about exactly who John was is derived from the conversation that he had with some priests and Levites that had been sent by the Jews. Uh, John refers to the Jews some 70 times in the gospel, uh, and it's not always referring to the same group of people. Uh, Here, the word likely refers to Jewish leaders and possibly the Sanhedrin. Uh, The Sanhedrin were a group of rabbis in various cities and territories that had judicial authority uh, in those areas. Verse 24 seems to say that this group was sent from the Pharisees, but it's probably better to understand that, understand that the, some Pharisees made up uh, the, a part of the Jews who were sent uh, as this delegation, uh, who sent this delegation of priests and Levites. The Pharisees were a group within Judaism who, hold, who held strictly to the Old Testament law, but who were also a bit inventive with how they sought to apply that law to modern-day concerns. So John the Baptist is creating a stir, is what we're finding. He's creating a stir. He's having enough of an influence that these Jewish, Jewish leaders felt the need to send priests and Levites to question him. The priests, of course, are those descended from Aaron who offered the sacrifices on behalf of the people, and the Levites were those who were part of the tribe of Levi but were not descended from Aaron, so they served in the temple in various other ways. And it would, it would seem that these two groups of people are sent because John is, is sort of infringing on their territory, as it were. He's performing ritual cleansings of some kind, and that's what they were supposed to do. So, long story short, we, we meet the Jews, we meet the Sanhedrin, we meet the Pharisees, we meet the priests, we meet the, the Levites, and we can draw a distinction between all these groups, but at the end of the day, what we're seeing is that the, uh, the religious establishment in John's day was, was nervous or angry or maybe a little bit of both about what John was doing and the ministry that he was performing. They didn't like it. They didn't like it because it didn't seem to be going through the right channels. He wasn't respecting these men who felt that they needed to be respected. You know, he didn't apply for a permit to baptize. Uh, he didn't have the right uniform on while he was baptizing. And he was a bit too loud, a little too unpredictable, a little bit too confrontational for them. So when they ask him in verse 19, who are you? They're also kind of saying, just who do you think you are? And John answers firstly with the same information we saw back in verses 6 through 8. He says it's that John was not the Messiah. Again, more about who John was not. John was not the Messiah. Uh, the word Christ has the idea of the anointed one. It's, it's not Jesus' last name. It's the Greek equivalent of the title Messiah. So John is very clear in his testimony that he is not the long-awaited seed from Eve that would crush the serpent. He is not the seed of Abraham who would come to release his people and redeem them. He is not the heir to the throne of David who would rescue them. 
And having established that, they then ask him, are you Elijah? So we find John was not Elijah. Of course he wasn't Eli Elijah, right? Why, why would they ask if he was Elijah? Well, because of Malachi 4, 5 through 6, which prophesied, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Then he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So Elijah was believed to come before the Messiah, and, and John certainly reminded the people of Elijah, uh, both through the way that he dressed also, and also his calls to reformation and to repentance. Even Jesus says in the other Gospels that John the Baptist came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. But John was not actually Elijah. And so he says, to, in answer to their question, no, I'm not Elijah. Next we find that, he also, that John was not the prophet, the list is getting long for who he is not, but just who is he? Well, he was not the prophet. This expectation of a prophet is probably drawn from Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18. This is what Moses says there. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This could be a prophecy of the Messiah himself, but John is very clear that it's not a prophecy about him. He is not the prophet. To which the priest and Levites say, okay, we give up. <laughs> Those were our best guesses, and you shot them all down. So, who are you? Because we're going to go back to these folks that sent us, and we can't go back and just give them a list of who you're not. We need to know who you are. Now, before we hear John's answer, we should point out the humility that he has here. Because he begins with who he is not. And John, as we're going to see, had, had a significant role in God's plan of redemption. But he begins by making it clear who he was not, in part to draw comparison between these greater figures so that he will seem lesser. And even the answer that he gives them is filled with humility. He points his questioners not to Malachi and not to Deuteronomy, but to Isaiah. And so who is John? We find that John was the voice crying in the wilderness. That's who John was. John was the voice crying in the wilderness. There's even humility in that, isn't there? He doesn't say he's a specific person. He says he's a voice. Just a voice. He's like the narrator who never appears on screen. John is just the voice calling out in the desert, pointing to the Messiah. We read Isaiah 40 earlier, which begins with the call for Isaiah to comfort the people who were in exile with the hope of salvation and restoration. Isaiah, after calling for that comfort, paints this picture of a road that's filled with hills and valleys and switchbacks and, and turns. And he says that this road is going to be leveled and straightened. Imagine a twisting and difficult hiking path, if you will. But somehow, through some miracle, you're able to kind of 
pick up that path at the end like a, like a long rug, and you just kind of shake it and stretch it, and it is no more hills, there's no more switchbacks, there's no more turns, it's just straight and level. That's what John says he's doing in his ministry. And what's this path that he's leveling? Well, it's the way for the Lord to come and save his people. It's the road that the Messiah is going to walk down to save us. The picture in Isaiah 40 reminds us that God has not made a difficult path to him and then called us to walk on it so that we might arrive at the place of redemption. Rather, he has prepared a way so that he can come and save us. Contrary to popular belief, there are not many roads that lead to God, but there is in fact one road that Jesus has willingly walked down to rescue us. And John sees his role as leveling that path so that God's children will be able to see him and will also be ready to receive him. I wonder if we could think about John like a police escort for a king. Maybe you can see John on a motorcycle, which makes sense, doesn't it? And the sirens are blaring and the lights are flashing and they're telling everyone to to move aside and to pay attention. Why? Because the king is coming. That was the ministry of John, which he's going to make even more clear in the rest of this passage and then in chapter 3 as well. So John answers this question about who he is by saying who he is not, and then by revealing that his role is focused on helping to reveal the, reveal the Messiah and prepare others to receive him. The people, the, those questioning him, though, were, were still not satisfied, in particular the Pharisees. They didn't like the answers that he was given. They wanted to know that if he's not the Messiah, if he's not Elijah, if he's not the prophet, then why is he baptizing people? And so that's the second question in this passage. Why was John baptizing? We've established who he is, but now we want to know why John was baptizing. And at the heart of this question is a question of authority. That's really what they're getting at. These individuals of authority, sent by men of authority, have just found out that having denied being the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, that John, therefore, in their eyes, has no authority to be doing what he is doing. And their question as to why John is baptizing, therefore, is not one of curiosity. It's a question of accusation. And John knows what they're asking. And so he answers their question in a bit of a strange way. And the way he answers it is intended to help them to see the nature of his ministry and the baptism that he performed so that they would understand that he's not seeking his own glory or his own authority. He's not like them. So he begins in verses 26 and 27 by essentially saying that his authority was lesser. That probably doesn't sound like an answer to the question, why was John baptizing, but that's the answer that he gives. Why was John baptizing? Because his authority was lesser. Not lesser than the authority of the Sanhedrin, not lesser than the authority of the Pharisees, but lesser than the Messiah's, lesser than the one that he was pointing to. He says for the first time, the first of three times, he says, I baptize with water, there in verse 26. 
in his humility, John recognizes the symbolic nature of his baptism and that it's nothing compared to the supernatural power of the Messiah's baptism. His, his work at the Jordan was all pointing forward to the real work of the Christ who was coming into the world to accomplish redemption. This is all maybe another way of saying that John was baptizing for the purpose of preparation. He was baptizing to clear the way in people's hearts through repentance so that when the Messiah arrived, they would see him and they would receive him and they would believe him. In that way, John's ministry is the same as the purpose for this gospel according to John. Both exist so that all who hear them might believe in the Messiah. And ironically, in their questions about John's identity and John's authority, we already see that this group from, from the, the Jewish leaders, that they are already among those who are not prepared. They are not ready for the Messiah, and they will not believe in and receive him unless their hearts change. change. Because they came to John, and they didn't come to be baptized. They didn't come to repent. They came to dig in their heels and to try to hold on to their own authority. And in that, I think we see one of the most common reasons why people will not believe in Jesus. And it's because they want to hold on to their perceived authority. Or, or maybe their claims to some sort of greater knowledge and intelligence. Or their attempts to be acceptable in and of themselves. Or their claims that they don't need to be saved. In a word, they reject Jesus because of pride. But as we come to Jesus, we must all recognize that our authority, our position, our power are lesser than his. That he is the Lord and God. That he is Savior and King. And unless he saves us by his power and his authority, then we will be lost forever. Well, while John's authority was lesser than the Messiah's, it's also clear that his authority was divinely given. That's the other thing we could note. His authority was divinely given. We don't actually see this reality in the conversation, conversation that John had with the Jewish delegation, but we see it in verse 33 as John's talking to his disciples. To draw a comparison, it would seem that much of the work of the Sanhedrin and of the Pharisees found its origin in men with ideas for how to make things better or men with thoughts about how to control people that were under them or to puff up their own egos. But John says that he was told to baptize with water by God himself. God told me to do this. That's part of it. Why are you doing this, John? Because God told me to. But think about this. John the Baptist received a word from the Lord calling him to baptize those who are looking for the Messiah. But he never says that to the Pharisees. When they ask who he is, he doesn't say, I'm John, and God told me to do this. He doesn't bring up his divine calling, but rather he describes his work as crying out in the wilderness so that the Messiah can be clearly seen and come in power. When he's asked about his authority, he doesn't appeal to his God-given commission, but he chooses to speak of how small and unworthy he is compared to the coming Messiah. How easy it is to get caught up 
in the way that the world is always jockeying for power and position and authority. How easy it is to flaunt our accomplishments or to display the cheap trophies that we think will bring the praises of our peers. The whirlpool of self-exaltation has a strong pull, doesn't it? We can get sucked into it so easily. But John reminds us that even the greatest accomplishments that we might show off or the highest authority that we might hold on to is nothing compared to Christ. No matter who we are or what we do, Jesus alone deserves glory. And John, who had a divine commission, knew that. John says he's not worthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah. D.A. Carson notes that in that society, a student was expected to do for his teacher anything that a slave would do. Anything, that is, with the exception of taking off the teacher's shoes. They didn't have to do that. But here, John makes no exceptions. And he says that he's not even worthy to do that. And we who are called to give glory to our Messiah should find ourselves speaking and living in a way that makes it clear who we, are and what, who, who we are and what authority we have and that it's really of no importance. We should speak and live in a way that reveals who Christ is and the authority that he has to both judge and save the world. We should be like John. We should be filled with humility and rejoicing that we've been given the privilege and the right just to be called children of God. Well, the text then allows John to do exactly what he wants to do, which is to step out of the spotlight so that he can shine it on Jesus. In verses 29 through 34, therefore, we find John's public witness and his testimony of who Jesus is. Again, that key question from John forms our third point, who Jesus is. If you looked at verse 19 and you tried to get a picture of it in your mind's eye, you would see the priests and the Levites coming down to the Jordan River to speak to John. I don't know what they look like to you, but they don't look happy to me. But there's a very different picture in verse 29, isn't there? In verse 29, John sees someone else coming towards him, and it's Jesus now, it seems possible and highly probable that John was very familiar with Jesus, that, that he knew Jesus. John's mother, Elizabeth, and Jesus' mother, Mary, were related, and so John may have been as close as a cousin to Jesus. But whatever their formal relationship, John almost certainly knew Jesus and had talked with him. But on, on this day, which we are told is the day after the delegation uh, from the Pharisees had come, or at least a day in close proximity to it, uh, on that day it became clear to John that the one that he'd been foretelling, the one that he'd been preparing people for, the one that he and all Israel had been waiting for, was Jesus. I wish I could get into John's mind and try to feel what he felt in, in reconciling that. And having known Jesus and been familiar with him and then suddenly realizing the one that I've been waiting for, the one that I've been preparing people for, it's, it's Jesus. 
this man walking to the water's edge in Bethany across the Jordan was the word of God made flesh. But John doesn't use that title. John highlights two different titles for Jesus. And first he says that he is the Lamb of God. Who is Jesus? He is the Lamb of God. That's a title we've grown pretty familiar with, I think. But it probably sounded really unique to John's disciples that day. There's a lot of speculation about actually what John himself understood when he uttered that phrase. Uh, Given what we know about John, there's a probability or possibility that he had in mind the figure of a warrior lamb, which is in Jewish apocalyptic literature. It's found in places like Romans 5 that we read earlier. And yet there's also so much going on here. There are seeds deeper uh, and, and in this, this title, or thoughts that are, that are deep in this title. And so let me give you three uh, about this, this title that John gives to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First, we can say that the Lamb is from God. The Lamb is from God. He is the Lamb of God. John's prologue comes to mind and the fact that he was with the Father from the beginning. But we might also remember the story of of Abraham and of Isaac in Genesis 22. You remember God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, on the mountain. And as they ascended the mountain, Isaac asks that heartbreaking question, Father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? To which Abraham replies, God will provide. God will provide the lamb. And in that story, God does just that. And yet, to an even greater degree, we see here that he provides Jesus as the lamb, the lamb who would take the place of sinful men and women. And that leads to our second thought. The lamb is from God, but the lamb is sacrificial. The lamb is sacrificial. We see this in the fact that the lamb takes away sin. The Day of Atonement comes to our minds where one goat died as a substitute for the people's sins and the other bore them away into the wilderness. Or we might think of Isaiah 53, the whole thing, but I'll just give you verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. And third, The lamb is for the world. The lamb is from God, the lamb is sacrificial, and the lamb is for the world. Here's another key word in John, world. We're going to see it show up often, and here it reminds us of the global nature of Jesus' ministry. That while the Sanhedrin argued about the specifics of the religious scaffolding that they had built up. Jesus shows up at the Jordan River. Why? Because he's going to save the whole world. He's going to make all who believe in him his children forever. John goes on to make it clear that Jesus was the one that he'd been talking about, the one he'd been saying over and over again he was not. We see on John's lips the words that we read back in in verse 15 of this same chapter where John, who was born at least three months before Jesus, testifies that Jesus is greater than him because he was before him. Now, that doesn't make sense if we're thinking in, you know, my kids are not before me. I was before them because I was born before them. 
And yet, John says he existed before, or that Jesus existed before him and he was before him because he was before all things, including time itself, because he was begotten, not created. John didn't know this, he says in verse 31. In fact, I think I saw as I was reading it this time that there were three times where it said something to the effect that they didn't, no one, they didn't know this. But rather, the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah was the reason that he had come baptizing. Three times he says, uh, John says that he baptizes with water, but then he reveals that Jesus, the Messiah, brings a greater baptism. He baptizes with the Spirit. And this leads us to the second title that John gives to Jesus. He's not only the Lamb of God, but he's also the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Though not mentioned, the, the baptism of Jesus seems to be assumed in this passage. John says that the reason he knew that Jesus was the Messiah was because God had told him that the one he saw the Spirit descend on, like a dove, was the one. And it was at the baptism of Jesus that this happened. It was, at the, it was there in the Jordan River that Jesus was anointed by the Spirit and empowered for ministry. And the Spirit didn't come on Jesus and then leave, but it came and it remained on him. And the coming of the Spirit signifies the greater baptism that was coming with the arrival of Jesus, the baptism in the Spirit, the baptism that meant all who believe in Jesus are filled with his Holy Spirit. The water baptism of Jesus was also the moment when God the Father spoke from heaven and said of Jesus, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In the other Gospels then, God himself bears witness to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And here in John's Gospel, John the Baptist clearly witnesses to and testifies to the same fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Bruce Milne draws a simple but powerful conclusion from this. He says, as Son of God, Jesus brings delight to the heart of the Father and also to our hearts as we follow him. Delight. For Jesus to be the Son of God means that he glorifies and he pleases God himself. And he therefore calls us to do the same. To glorify God then is not misery. It's our highest joy. As we are obedient, obedient to him, modeling Jesus' obedience to the Father, we please God and find the happiness our hearts are longing for. John the Baptist teaches us this, that our greatest delight is not in making our names great. No, but in believing that no matter who we are or what we do, Jesus alone deserves glory. So I would say, brothers and sisters, resist the, temp the temptation to make your life about your name or your authority or your praise or your accomplishments. Maybe we could just say resist the temptation to make your life about you. Because the end of that road is not joy. It's misery. Instead, let's walk the path of John. Let's walk the path of Jesus who lived and even died for the glory of God alone and in doing so found true and lasting joy and peace. I find it amazing how much is here in this first chapter because right from the beginning of this book of John, we see the beauty of the gospel message 
in all of its fullness, the message that we believe and the gospel message that we're gonna celebrate now through the Lord's Supper. It's that Jesus has been sent from God to save us. That's, that's at the heart, isn't it? That Jesus has been sent from God to save us and that he is the lamb who takes our place in dying on the cross for our sins. He is the son of God who has obeyed his father, not simply in being baptized, but all the way up to the point of death on the cross. And he is the one who can baptize us with his spirit, cleansing us from sin and filling us with the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in his ways. So that the belief, so, so that belief, so that when we believe in him as we become God's children and we also are empowered to live as his children in this world. So then as we take the bread and the cup, we remember that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. He's the Son of God who has brought delight to the Father's heart and to our hearts because of his death and his resurrection. Our hope of salvation is not in who we are, but in who Jesus is. And so we can take this meal to God's glory and to his glory alone.